Hello, and welcome to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Donald Thompson, Diversity and Inclusion Executive and CEO of WalkWest in Raleigh, North Carolina. On this podcast, we share insights and perspectives from global leaders in diversity and share journeys of amazing professionals who've overcome the odds to reach their goals. We'll hear what diversity means, why businesses should prioritize diversity and inclusion initiatives, and why DNI is not only the right thing to do, but an imperative for growth for you and your company. In essence, why diversity is beyond the checkbox. Before we get started, remember to sign up for updates on future podcasts and all of our upcoming diversity initiatives, including the course, Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Sign up at thediversitymovement.com. On the show today, we have two young professionals from NC State University who are focused on diversity and inclusion. One of the things that we found is that diversity and inclusion is a buzzword that everybody's into today. But very few universities, and NC State is one of them here in North Carolina, are putting intentional focus on making sure not only that diversity and inclusion in the students that they recruit, but more importantly, in the faculty's ability to create educational opportunities within their daily work in reaching all different types of students. Because you can be a great teacher, but you can create exponential value if you can communicate messaging across all different kinds of demographics. For Delisha, she was born and bred in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's been exposed to a diverse set of people all her life. But Bree, it wasn't until she went to college that she really started to experience a diverse culture. So, like I said, I grew up in a very rural area, pretty black and white, like most small towns in the South. And so it wasn't until I went off to the University of Georgia where I was exposed to so many different people from so many different backgrounds that were totally different from what I knew, like even learning about different religions besides Christianity was a new concept for me. And so when I went into working in college access and working specifically with with underrepresented students, learning um, how to show up as myself and that being enough to inspire students, so not necessarily feeling like, okay, I have to teach these groups of students these skills in order to be successful. Because for most students from marginalized groups, they already have the skills and the capital that they need to be successful. Um, but I've learned that working with, in general, marginalized groups, a lot of times it's that empowerment piece. Yeah. And so for me and my work, just A, showing up as myself and knowing that that's enough to empower and B, just being radical in my approach and um, go, a lot of times going out of my way to seek out those experiences to support students. No, that's super powerful and, and impressive. And one of the things that you said that uh, I just want to reiterate, you talked about the empowerment piece. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I try to encourage people that I talk with from all different backgrounds is normally what people have is more than enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We often focus on our limitations mm-hmm. and what that does is it dulls the tools. Yep. And we've got to get more and more people focused on the things that we do have mm-hmm. and let's win with that mm-hmm. while we're trying to figure out the things around the edges. And so I really appreciate uh, you describing that. Delisha, your programming work, yeah. right? Both Wilson and at NC State. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the detail of some of the programs that you're building and have built. Right. And, and a little bit about that passion for you. Sure. So um, I think one of the big ones right now that is kind of in the works and underway is something that Bree and I actually have started that we've called Something to Chew On. It's your lunch and learn. Um, it's for our faculty and our staff within the college. 
Um, but we've taken a creative approach and we've thought about, well, how's a way that we can bring topics related to diversity and inclusion to the table and thinking about from a historical standpoint. And so not sure if you're aware of seeing that the New York Times who's put out the 1619 Project, which it is this kind of catapult of reflection of the past 400 years of slavery and thinking about what slavery did to the U.S., but then also what erupted from it. And so everything from cultural appropriations to capitalism, to traffic, to healthcare, and so many things that we are all impacted by and thinking about, okay, so what does this mean to us? And how do we start making changes where it may affect me one way, you something completely Mm -hmm. different, Brie another way. And so we've been able to kind of start breaking this apart um, and giving homework almost to people and saying, go read pages, you know, whatever from whatever. Um, and it's focused specifically on one topic, but there's this reflection and it ties back to slavery and how so many things have come out of slavery that a lot of us don't even think about. Give me an example. Um, you know, economy and growth. And so within um, the article and within the podcast, one of the things that kind of kicks off is talking about quotas. For slavery, it's, you know, you have your individuals that are out in the cotton field. They are picking cotton. One person picks however much within one day. One of, Someone else picks so, so much more, less in a day. But the owners are keeping track of it. And they're looking to see mm-hmm. how much you're bringing in per day. And are you going over your quota? And if so, that means I have this ex- expectation that you can actually go and pick more than what you've been picking. Or are you picking less? And if so, you know, some kind of lynching or some type of horrible thing that I'll say that, you know, has taken place where it's you didn't meet it, you have slacked off for that day. And you think about in today's world and how many companies have quotas. How many places have this expectation for their employees to do so much within a day? And so many of us, we don't think about it from that standpoint in terms of, well, where does this actually come from? How did it originate? And how did it originate? And so we had a really great conversation that was focused on capitalism, but it tied into higher education, holiday shopping, and workplace stress. Interesting. These are all pretty powerful topics in themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're experiential mm-hmm. and for people to grow and change, right, we've got to really understand their experiences, mm-hmm. right, not just their kind of physical uh, appearances and, and different things. How would you guys define or educate people on what diversity in the workplace means and if, if you're dealing kind of just from a base level? I've heard the analogy that diversity is giving the invitation to the party when inclusion is being asked to dance. And so for me, I I even think inclusion goes beyond being asked to dance. But if I come to the party, I want to make sure that you have a menu option for my dietary needs and that I have an appropriate place to go to the restroom based on my gender identity. So even thinking beyond just having a seat at the table, but thinking, what does it look like for all of your guests at the party? Whatever that party may be. So in this instance, thinking about the workplace. No, that's super powerful. One of the things, whether it's in the corporate side, the educational side, any kind of institutional change has to be driven by the leadership. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the leaders within your organization and how they've empowered you to really attack this type of programming. I think one of the things I'll say is, that, you know, our leaders within our college are right now, I think, 
more active and wanting to think more holistically about diversity and inclusion across an entire college community. And so when we say our college community, we're talking about our students, we're talking about our faculty, we're talking about our staff. So I think what's interesting is the makeup of our student population and the graduate level, majority of the students are international. And so it's, you know, from the standpoint, from everything of them walking into their very first day of class to them getting ready to leave and needing support when it comes to career services, it's this kind of thought of how do we start making sure that those international students have the resources that they need and able to go off into the workforce, but then also how do we equip our faculty and staff to actually understand Mm -hmm. some of the challenges that they may face. And at the same time, then it's this balancing act of beyond just the students themselves, but what are their experiences? What are their challenges? How do we better educate ourselves on those experiences and challenges and trying to put ourselves in their footsteps as much as possible? And some of it is just through conversation. And that alone is a starting point before we even do any programming or any kind of trainings or anything else that they need to be a part of. But I think right now, I would say our leadership as a whole is wanting to actively see things that are empowering our students and educating our faculty and staff to better support the students in the classroom and outside of the classroom. No, that's awesome. One of the things from a diversity and inclusion standpoint is conversation is powerful mm-hmm. and you get an opportunity to break down walls mm-hmm. and create a space where people can talk, mm-hmm. right? Because we can't really get to know each other if we don't spend time together. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I totally get that. How do you guys encourage people to act in the moment when they hear or see something that's said or done that's no, not quite right? You know, there are certain words that, for the most part, if you have a pretty good, if you grew up in the States and you have a pretty good understanding of race relations and racial dynamics, there are certain terms that, you know, are just a no-no. And so for a lot of us, it's really easy to say like, hey, Don, that was not okay. You shouldn't have said that. But when it comes to dress or when it comes to, you know, how people may show up on social media or maybe outside of work, how do you have that courage to have that conversation with someone? Something Delisha and I try to be intentional about is really going back to the empowerment piece, empowering um, everyone, our colleagues, even us. I mean, it's not easy. It's right. Right. so it's, hard. It's not easy to tell someone like, hey, that's not OK. And this is why it's not OK. And also realizing that if I, as someone who is committed to waking up every day and making the world more inclusive, and being respectful, I know that that's part of my responsibility as a human being because that's what I've committed to. So even though it's hard, um, recognizing that that's a commitment I've made to myself and a commitment I've made to bettering society. So how can I be an example to encourage colleagues to do the same? It's something you have to constantly continue challenging mm-hmm. yourself on. And in a sense, you have to you have to step outside of that mm-hmm. box, so to speak, and you have to get uncomfortable because mm-hmm. Diversity is not diversity without you being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things I can say in terms of a way to think about it, so this comes out of um, NCBI, which is the National Coalition Building Institute, um, and NC State has a chapter. I'm fortunate enough to be on the team there. One of our workshops, it ends with this very question, and how do you how do you kind of respond when someone says something or shows up somewhere and you're like, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's something that we call fight flight, flow. Ultimately, you want to be able to flow. And flow is so hard. Mm -hmm. 
it seems easy when you're like, okay, someone just said something and now I have to be able to flow through this conversation with them, asking them questions without getting angry, without getting upset, without, you know, this emotion side that kind of sways me one way or the other, Mm -hmm. whether you're sad or you're mad, but you don't want to fly because fly means, you know, you're just leaving it. And you've left it at the table. You have acknowledged that this person has said something or has done something and you leave it or fight is basically you're going to say something and it puts that person in another uncomfortable Mm -hmm. place. And so, you know, one of the things is kind of looking at it, typically if someone has said something or has done something there, they have some type of ouch Mm -hmm. and that flow allows you to identify what that ouch is. But if you fight, you're fighting with two ouches Mm -hmm. because you're both hurting and no one is going to heal within that particular scenario or that situation. But flow is hard. One of the things that I want to just repeat for, for the power fight, flight and flow. And that came from the national coalition building Institute. Yes. Tell me a little bit, like, tell me a little bit about this organization. Yeah. And how you, like, that's really good stuff. Yeah. So it's an international organization. NC State has its own chapter. There's a few other institutions throughout the U.S., and then they've got some internationally. And so um, there's a team of us throughout NC State. And so it's made up of a very diverse group of individuals that are mainly faculty and staff. You know, I have myself that's out of an educational department. We have some other folks who are out of IT. We have some folks who work within our vet school. We have researchers on the team. And so you're bringing folks with their professional experience. It's all coming from different backgrounds. And we receive requests to come and facilitate a workshop. And sometimes the workshop is, you know, I just want my ambassadors to be aware of diversity and inclusion. And for that particular group, it may mean I want to ensure my ambassadors are being mindful and being thoughtful of the things that they may say or do as they're interacting with prospective students and families and thinking about the questions that they may receive and what's the best way to actually answer that question. But then also being mindful of themselves to ensure that, you know, as an ambassador, they're not misrepresenting NC State themselves or any of their own beliefs in a wrong manner. And so... This workshop, it starts off with something that we call up-downs. It's great because it's a way of kind of innocent saying, like, who's in the room? And so you may start off with age. You may start off with gender. You may go into race, ethnicity. Um, but within that, you're able to kind of break down and saying, okay, so, you know, please stand up if you identify as a part of a European heritage. And if so, then we may then ask, you know, do you know which European heritage is? Got it. Um, You may go into Black uh, African-American. And then there's that one of saying, well, I identify as Black, but I can't can't say which country. I can't trace it. Mm -hmm. And so it's this way of being able to understand who's in the room. It's understanding the records that we have um, that come from our childhood when we may have a stereotype where we say something. And then how do you start to think about where these things come from, knowing that although it's there, it's not necessarily what we believe. Mm-hmm. And then also, how do you how do you fight these stigmas that are out in the world? No, that's super powerful. Thanks for that explanation. Everyone learns differently. Mm-hmm. And diversity and inclusion, there's lots of information out there. How do we make the good stuff that has some meat to it? more well-known mm-hmm. so that when people are seeking, they can get some things that help them move forward. Mm-hmm. If you were 
talking with uh, prospective employers um, or, or people that are running businesses, and they were like, well, how do I get a diversity program started? Like, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I work with a lot of large corporations and have friends and colleagues there, and they've got enough money behind putting some really nice programming in place. And there's, there's companies that are doing a really good job. I'm really talking about $5 million business, $10 million business, $50 million business, where they don't have you know, the ability to have a chief diversity officer and someone specifically to create, you know, cultural working groups and different things. What are some assets, readings, thought process that you would recommend for somebody just trying to get something off the ground? Diversity is a buzzword, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, like, let's have a diversity program. Let's get more diverse people. But why? Why? Why is it that you want a more diverse workforce? So why is it that you want to cultivate some sort of diversity programming. So I think the first step is just being intentional and having an understanding of what your true purpose is, because otherwise, if you're just throwing together a program, it's not going to succeed. It's going to fail because there is no purpose. And because there are no outcomes, it may end up being worse off than you were to begin with. And I think another thing to think about, too, is programming is great, but a lot of times diversity issues come into place based off of institutional issues. Okay. So thinking about what can we do as an organization to be better and in turn promote a sense of diversity within our organization. So you may not have the money to hire a, a chief diversity officer, but can we hire a consulting group to come in and tell us where are gaps in our organization and mm-hmm. give us recommendations of things that we can do in order to move forward? No, that's a great answer. I mean, most people that I talk to now believe that diversity is good. Mm-hmm. I think that macro messaging mm-hmm. has been successful. And, and those that don't, they're going to be there for a while. Right. So really, we got to work <laughs> with the people that mm-hmm. say, okay, you know, this is good. And now a lot of people are searching for how do I and then how do we mm-hmm. in our organization mm-hmm. figuring out those next steps. And I think that's where there's still a lot of green pasture, so mm-hmm. to speak. For, for people to put the right elements in place to achieve those mm-hmm. outcomes, you know, once they have them. When you guys think about your journey as practitioners in diversity, inclusion, and leaders in that space, what are some of the key things that you would have people taking a diversity, inclusion course think about, reflect on, so that what they're learning does remain sticky and it becomes a part of them? So I think one of the things I first start off with is asking the question, who am I? really having to think about who are you as a person and I ask my students that and they kind of sit there and they look and they're like well you know I'm such and such and I'm like okay let's dig a little bit deeper who are you what does that really mean and so I think at that point that's where you start really thinking about some of your identity groups some of the ones that you can outwardly see but then the ones that are truthfully hidden And one of the ways that I think about it is the cultural iceberg. And so, you know, most of us, we know you can only see about 20% of an iceberg. The rest of it's underwater. Some of it's super, super deep. Think about yourself as this cultural iceberg and what people can see from the outside. But then what's, what's on the inside is probably what matters the most. When you start thinking about yourself and understanding who you are, I think that gives you a better perspective of the world in knowing that when I look at you, John, you know, I see one thing, but that may not be who you are as a person or what you may tell me. And same thing if I were to say the same thing for Bree. But if I ask you, well, who are you? 
you may give me something completely different that, you know, blows my socks off. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not what I expected you to say. Um, And I think at that point, that's where you start really having these questions of saying, okay, now I really want to actually get to know Mm -hmm. people. And you're taking it beyond this surface layer and you're peeling the onion back and you're getting to some of those core components. There's some things I've said to students about myself and they're like, they look at me with big bug eyes like I had no idea. And I'm like, yeah, you you wouldn't know mm-hmm. that just from looking at a person. That's right. But when you start asking those questions about yourself, it allows you to open the door to being able to be a little bit more comfortable to asking those questions about others. too. Obviously, we all have our own idea of what truth is. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I learned that I've kind of carried with me um, as a practitioner is that multiple truths can exist in the same place. In, in, in the same space, um, I think a lot of times when you think about diversity and inclusion work, especially for people like me who grew up in a very not as diverse city as Raleigh, like going off to college and just having this cognitive dissonance and saying like, well, this is not what I know to be true, but kind of growing through this mm-hmm. idea of like, okay, this is my truth. This is someone else's truth. And I don't have to make that work for me. And I don't have to force my truth on someone else. And then also realizing that I need to give myself space and grace for my truth to evolve. So the same way I thought, obviously, at 19 is not the same way I think now at 29. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing that I would add in that we talk about a lot about Brie is thinking about what privilege mm-hmm. you have. Mm-hmm. So in terms of your identities, what privilege comes from those identities? But then with that, also knowing if you have majority privilege identities, being also aware of oppressed identities, mm-hmm. those who come from marginalized backgrounds and marginalized mm-hmm. communities, and what's the best way you can support those individuals where, you know, you come from this level of power or the ivory tower, so to speak, but how do you help a friend? How do you mm-hmm. give them a hand in being able to reach, you know, them where they are and not just looking out the ivory tire on yourself and just saying like, well, everything's peachy keen here, which, you know, it's true. That's great if it is, but think about everyone else who's around you who's not living that same life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we both try to be intentional yeah. about as black women. Like obviously in the the theory of privilege and oppression, being a black woman, the, those are two intersecting oppressed identities. And <laughs> Flipping that and saying, like, okay, we are college-educated Black women working on a college campus in positions that allow us to educate others. So how can we Mm -hmm. use our positions to create space for people from marginalized groups and to Mm -hmm. incorporate inclusion for our colleagues? No, I think it's super powerful. I I really like the the component. I love all of it, but the who I am. Mm -hmm. Because I think when you start with self, Right, it gives the right context of humility mm-hmm. before you start really mm-hmm. looking at others. We really all take like a a moment. We're like, okay, I got this together. Mm-hmm. Not so much this together. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm gonna be a little bit more graceful with you because mm-hmm. I got this stuff to work yep. on. Mm-hmm. Let's just talk. Right, yep. right. Like, and you've got to you've got to find a level of comfort within mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah, yeah. But then still continue to push in those areas where you're like, I don't know this part of me, but I really need to understand mm-hmm. this yeah. part of me. You mentioned privilege. How do you explain to someone that doesn't believe there is white privilege? <laughs> Look at the history of the United States of America, right? There's literally only been one president that has been not white. 
So for a lot of people, luckily, for, there is a generation of kids who can look at a president and see themselves. But for the most part, literally the highest, highest office in power for a lot of women and for a lot of non-white people, that's a position that could seem unattainable because they have never seen, we have never seen someone who looks like us within that position. Um, and so when you think about privilege, you have to think about power. Who holds the power? What do people look like who are in positions of power? And if I don't see someone who looks like me in those positions, I think they have something that I don't have, which in most cases is white privilege. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, yeah. And I, God, that's like the biggest question. Um, why you think? And I'm on a roll. I think sometimes, too, a lot of people who don't think white privilege exists think they don't exist because they've struggled in life or that they've had some, like, well, I didn't get this position. I'm not rich or I grew up in a rural background or whatever. That can be true. Like I said, multiple truths exist. And more likely than not, there are more opportunities that can be afforded to you because of your race. Or there are not any opportunities being taken away from you because of your race. Totally agree. Last question as we wrap up, and and I um, am absolutely enjoying talking with you guys. Me and too. Appreciate just the, Great. the the flow to, <laughs> of, of just really listening to you guys riff. When you guys are working with young people, how do they view diversity in choosing companies to work with? Because I think before you guys answer, one of the things that the angle that I'm coming out with diversity is how does it make the business better? Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. finding that that is opening some ears, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a moral imperative to mm -hmm. it, for sure. It's the right thing to do. You should, it's the just thing to do. But then what are the financial reasons mm -hmm. that your business can prosper yeah. if you think about it correctly? Yeah. So I've had students who are looking at companies. And at first, you know, for a student who's graduating, they're like, I just want a job. Mm -hmm. I just need a job. And, you know, that is, of course, one of the critical things upon graduating from college is that, you are leaving not only with a degree, but a job in hand. And I would say for some students, it's not at the forefront for them to think about diversity within the workplace. But I have had students who have gone off and they've started working. And within those first few years, they're like, wait a minute, this is not quite what I thought it was going to be or what it was like. And that could have been based upon an internship experience that they had and then you go and you work mm -hmm. and you're there full time and you're like, hold on, mm -hmm. this is this is a different place mm -hmm. for students. Now, it's one of the things that they more so learn once they actually start working. And at that point, it then becomes a critical component, particularly for students of color mm -hmm. or for students who have other hidden identities that um, are your marginalized or your oppressed identities. And in particular, like I had one student who was an undocumented student. Mm. Um, and that let alone mm. is a huge thing of just thinking about like, okay, so what do I do in order to find a job and where do I go? But thinking about, is there a level of comfort that you can actually bring that up at some point within an interview mm -hmm. process to say, okay, so I'm actually an undocumented student. Will you still hire me? And if not, then, you know, does that student actually even enter into an interview with a company knowing this part of themselves? Um, but at some point having to disclose it once you start going through the hiring and the HR process. And then for some students, I think part of it goes down into location. Mm -hmm. And so I've had another student who 
had a wonderful internship with a company and thought about working with them full time. And she was like, I don't know if I could live in this area. And at that point in time for a company, I, you know, I think one of the things is it's not saying like, okay, let's get up and move our headquarters into, you know, a more diverse area, but it's more so thinking about how do you actually provide the resources for individuals who are coming into that company to make them feel more comfortable? Um, and then also showing that you care, showing that you want to actually be there. And I think right now, um, I know research is coming out in terms of, you know, your generational groups. That is one of the things mm -hmm. for millennials is they do want you know, money is great, but actually money is not on their mm -hmm. top list of things when they're looking at companies. Um, workplace environment is one of them and understanding that company culture, they want not complete freedom, but they want to be able to feel comfortable within um, the company themselves, where they're working with and who they're working with. Yep. Um, and I do think a lot of that at some point, it does circle back around to diversity and inclusion. You know, I can't say that really probably any of our students are probably asking questions like Bree and I would ask if we were on an interview and asking about, okay, so tell me a little bit more about your team dynamics. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more about what is your, you know, workplace environment and what, what's your culture within the company to try and drill down a little bit more into is your company supportive? Are they in tune when it comes to diversity and inclusion? And, you know, is this something that I'm going to be welcomed into when, it, you know, working on your team? So, and I yeah. think along with that, this generation of youth are a lot more, <laughs> I like using that word, <laughs> they're a lot more socially aware and yeah. just have access to a lot more information than even what I had. Because I grew up on, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, MySpace and stuff. But these kids are like Tumblr and everything else. And so I think, along with your point, the students that we're working with and the young adults that we're working with, they want this sense of congruency with companies. So what are your ethics? What are the causes that you care about? And how does that align with my personal values? Um, because a lot of our students, for instance, they're interested in sustainability. So does your company have sustainable practices? And is that congruent with the type of culture that you cultivate within your organization? Yeah, and I would add on um, social justice mm -hmm. to that mm -hmm. as a topic mm -hmm. and thinking about work law labors. I mean, because even like think about this idea of cancel culture. All it takes is for your brand to do something ridiculous and it be all over the news. Students, more likely than not, that's where they're going to think about when they're applying for jobs and they see like this yeah. company is hiring for X, Y, and Z. Well, guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you. We really, really appreciate it. That was Delisha Hilton and Bree Hart from North Carolina State University. What a great conversation with two African-American women leading diversity and inclusion in a university mindset. A few things that we want to lead with. If employers want to attract and retain the best talent, whether it's in corporate America or in the university environment, it's really, really important that not only is your workplace diverse, but you're intentional about making everyone feel welcome and a very cherished part of any team or organization that you're building. It's hard work. The second is a concept of fight, flight, or flow. When faced with a situation that's clearly wrong, how do you react? Ultimately, you wanna be able to flow and not make the other person uncomfortable for what they said, but create an educational opportunity so people behave better in the next interaction. 
If your company is doing diversity simply because you think you're supposed to do it, then we commend you. Because wherever you start is wherever you start. But really, we're looking to help organizations create goals, create tracking of those goals, and for diversity to matter more than just a checkbox. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. As I mentioned at the top of the show, sign up at thediversitymovement.com to get updates on our upcoming diversity inclusion course, Diversity Beyond the Checkbox, which features excerpts from this podcast and others. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and a review, and more importantly, tell a friend. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. If you're looking for information on full-service podcast production, head over to EarFluence.com. Thank you for listening, and we see you next time on Diversity Beyond the Checkbox.